encourage you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2 once more as we continue from last evening reading verses 8 through 20. Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 20. This is God's word. Luke writes, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Imagine that if we took a, a live stream video camera of your childhood home on Christmas morning, we saw your living room, we saw your dining room, we saw your bedroom. Right? If we set a, this live stream camera and, and, and we showed everyone all the different traditions of your childhood, whether the traditions of gift giving or of decoration or of culinary delights, whatever it might be, uh, chances are something in your childhood would, would strike us as very odd, right? That's not the way we do it. And yet for you, right, you would say this is normal. This is familiar. This is comfortable. This is the way it ought to be done, right? Maybe uh, everyone in your home opened up all their presents in sort of chaotic fashion. Or maybe everyone did it in very orderly fashion. Right? Right. Maybe uh, you, you showed up Christmas morning and just dumped your stockings out first thing, or maybe you had to wait until everyone was there to open it up in, in a very slow fashion as you waited in long to, to have your stocking. Uh, maybe you knew exactly what you were getting. Maybe you were completely surprised. Whatever it might be, we who are watching you would say, mm, that's not the way we do it. Right? That, that's not how, how it's ordinary and normal in our household. And it's really not until you get married, right, in that first Christmas, and you realize, oh, everyone doesn't do it this way, right? Well, as we look at a text like this, it's a very familiar text, a very comfortable text, right? It's a text that we feel like we know a lot about, and, and perhaps we've heard it so many times in our life. And yet, because it is so familiar, it's possible that that familiarity prevents us from seeing how odd and how strange and how abnormal it really is. That God would send his son into the world in circumstances like these, and that he would announce the birth of his son in this way, 
to a small group of men of low social standing privately in the dark of night. This surely is not the way that we would have done it if we were God, right? This certainly isn't the way that we expect God to do it. Right? We, we expect it to be more like the Lion King, Mufasa and Rafiki holding forth the sun for all the animals to see. Right? That's how God should have announced the birth of his son. But God's ways are higher than our ways. You know the story. Right? Even if you don't believe a word of it, you've heard it before. You've been exposed to it at some point. There are these shepherds. They're out in the fields near Bethlehem, some six miles from the capital city of Israel in Jerusalem. They're guarding their flocks from predators, from thieves. They're making sure the, the sheep don't wander away. It's just a normal night shift until it isn't. Right? Then all of a sudden, in the dark of night, everything changes. One moment it's night. The next moment it's as bright as day. Out of nowhere, a figure is standing before these shepherds, Luke tells us that these rugged men who had fought off wild beasts, who regularly camped outside at night, they are filled with great fear at the appearance of what they eventually or maybe immediately realize this is a supernatural force, a supernatural figure. The angel speaks, and of course, as we've seen already in Luke's gospel, the first words out of the angel's mouth are, don't be afraid. But why ought they not to be afraid? Because that special child that, that God's people have been anticipating since the fall of Adam has finally been born. The angel goes on to, to tell them, assuming that they will be looking for this child, to tell them how they might discover him, how they might recognize him, how they might know that they found the right baby. He'll be lying in a manger, a manger, an animal's feed trough, a rather odd place for the Son of God to lie. Before the shepherds have time to even think about how odd that last word is, a manger. There's not just one angel, there's a multitude of the heavenly hosts, God's angelic army, praising God for what he has just accomplished. Those angels depart into heaven, which certainly confirmed for the shepherds that this birth announcement was from the Lord, as they say in verse 15. And they set out quickly to Bethlehem to see for themselves. They find Mary, they find Joseph, they find the baby in the feed trough. And then the shepherds mimic the angels. They become the announcers, announcing all that they had heard from the angels and then praising God for all that he has done. How odd, how odd, how strange that God would send his son in this way, that he would accomplish the birth of his son in these circumstances of, of lowliness. And that the first recipients of the news of the birth of his son, would be these lowly shepherds in the middle of the night. And then through them, through these shepherds, that they would be the first evangelist. Because that's exactly what's happening here. They are proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has always used foolish means to bring his gospel to the world. In verse 10, that little phrase, I bring you good news. It's one word, euangelizomai. You hear the word evangelical, evangel, evangelist, right? It's that word, I bring good news. I declare good news. I herald the good news, the good tidings of great joy. The angels and then the shepherds are preaching the gospel. They are declaring 
the glorious good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. And in this text, in this story, we see three things about the gospel itself. We see first the message of the gospel. We see the graciousness of the gospel. And we see the right response to the gospel. I want us to look at these three things together as we meditate upon not merely the facts of the story, but the gospel that is communicated to us here in this text. First, what is the message of the gospel? You see it there in verses 10 to 12. The good news that the angel brings is the news that Jesus has been born in the city of David, Bethlehem. But notice, the angel doesn't merely give us the fact of the birth. He also explains its, its significance. Because why does the birth of a random baby to a, a random group of men mean anything, right? Unless he's not a random baby. The angel tells us who Jesus is. And he tells us who he is by these three titles that he uses for him. Savior, Christ, and Lord. These three titles only here in this verse are ever used together in the four Gospels. First, the angel says that a Savior has been born that day. We've already seen in Luke's Gospel, Mary called God her Savior in verse 47 of chapter 1. Zechariah had already told us that, that God was raising up a horn of salvation to deliver his people from their enemies, to give them the knowledge of salvation, consisting in the forgiveness of their sins. Well, now the angel declares that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus born in Bethlehem, he is that divine and human Savior whom God has raised up to rescue his people. We saw it, didn't we, a couple weeks back. Matthew 1, 21, you will call him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins so what is it we need to be saved from? Well, of course, our sin. Of course, as we've just sung, Satan and his tyranny. Jesus is the seed of the woman who has come to be our champion to conquer Satan. He is the one who delivers us, who frees us from all of sin's penalty and power. But there's a, an aspect that we often forget that we need to be saved from. Are you saved? The question might go out from us or to us? Saved from what? Well, yes, Satan, yes, sin. But, but Luke's friend Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and Romans 5 reminds us that Jesus came to save us from God's coming wrath. Because of our sin, the wrath of God was upon us. And Jesus came to save us from God, to save us from the wrath of God. Think of those old westerns where the bandit is tied up, the, the pretty young woman on the railroad tracks, and the, the train is barreling down the tracks about to run her over until the hero swoops in, unties her, and delivers her from the threat of that train. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus is the one who has rescued his people from their enemy. Satan, who tempted us to sin, essentially handing us the ropes to tie ourselves to the railroad tracks so that the wrath of God was barreling down upon us. And Jesus comes and he rescues us. How? By humbling himself to become a human, willingly tying himself to the railroad tracks, as it were, in our place, bearing God's wrath himself as our substitute, being the propitiation is the the big Bible word, the wrath bearer, 
the one who satisfies God's holy anger against our sin and saves us. So that in the words of Augustus Toplady, who wrote Rock of Ages and also this hymn, If thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First from my bleeding surety's hand and then again from mine. Jesus is our Savior, born to live, born to die for us and for our salvation. But he's not just the Savior, he's also the Christ. The Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. A title that means anointed one, equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. In the Old Testament, the anointing came upon men who were going to be prophets and priests and, and kings. And even as we have confessed this morning using the Heidelberg Catechism, when we call Jesus the Christ, we are saying that he is our great prophet and priest and king. He is the word made flesh to reveal God to us. He is the one born to offer himself as a priest, as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he is the one born in the city of King David as a king, to reign on the throne of David forever over God's people. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the anointed Savior. And finally, the angel says he is the Lord. The Lord had been born that day. This title uniquely reserved for the God of Israel. We've already seen in the first two chapters of Luke almost up to 20 times the, the, the title Lord used for God. And yet now the angel, just like Elizabeth and Zechariah also had done before, the angel uses it of Jesus. We're so used to calling Jesus Lord, and yet we forget that it is blasphemy to call a man God, unless that man also happens to be God. Jesus is fully man and fully God. Fully God become a man without ceasing to be God. The baby in the manger is the Lord. As Christian taught us last night, Caesar Augustus mentioned in verse 1, right, he was known as Savior and Lord. And the angels say, no, no, no. The baby in the manger, he is the Lord. He is the one who will rule over earth and heaven. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Lord. This is the message of the gospel. And how odd it is that God would send his Savior, his Christ, his Lord, the anointed Son, in circumstances like this. Jesus, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a cow cereal bowl, to be our Savior. What a contrast between these titles and the circumstances of Jesus' birth. And yet this is the heart of the good news of the gospel. The person of Jesus, the exalted one, who humbled himself to save us to the uttermost. So Luke here teaches us of the message of the gospel. He also teaches us, secondly, of the graciousness of the gospel. And we see this graciousness in two ways. First, we see it in the universal nature of the gospel. Right? The angel tells us there in verse 8 that, that there, he brings good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, we have to be careful. This doesn't mean that every single person, man, woman, boy, and girl, will be saved and enjoy the joy that Jesus brings. 
That God is gracious to every single person without exception in a saving way. No, if that were true, that would be universalism. Everyone would be saved. Right? There would be no wrath of God. Now, when the Bible speaks in this way of, of all the people, it's, it's teaching that God is gracious to all people without distinction. Right? He doesn't show his partiality based on any factor in us. The gospel is all, for all kinds of people, even those that we might least expect, those that we might most quickly exclude. It's significant, isn't it? That the first people who hear about Jesus are not the rich and the powerful, the politically connected that we read of in verse 1, but they are poor shepherds on the bottom rungs of the social ladder, insignificant from a worldly perspective. Again, how odd that God would do it this way. If it were us, we would probably think like the cryptocurrency companies. Hey, let's tell it to the, the, the pretty people, the movers, the shakers, the athletes, the movie stars. Let them be the ones who declare to everyone else that this is what you need to do. But God is acting just like Mary said he would in chapter 1, verse 52. He has exalted those of humble estate. How easy it is to think or to even give off signals unintentionally that the gospel is only for a certain type of people. It's only for people who look and dress and spend and work and play and study just like we do. But throughout Luke's gospel, he is going to make the point, he has made it already, and he will continue to make it that the gospel is for all kinds of people, regardless of the labels that we might give them, regardless of the, the, the surface distinctions that society so quickly applies. This is why we as a congregation long to see our church reflect the, the broadness, the diversity of the kingdom of God, the body of Jesus Christ, that any sinner, that every sinner might know that God is not one to show partiality in the ways that we humans are, but all are welcome to come to Jesus in faith and repentance. The graciousness of the gospel is seen in its universal nature. But it's also seen in its particular nature, isn't it? Look again at the angel's song in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, we are more familiar, aren't we, with the old King James, which reads, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Why the difference? Well, the difference actually stems from a question regarding what is the original Greek text anyway? The oldest translations, the oldest manuscripts on which the translations like the ESV and other modern translations are based support this translation here in the ESV. The, the, uh, in the manuscripts that the King James is based on, uh, there's one letter missing from the end of one word, and it's much easier to understand that the scribes accidentally omitted it than to think that they accidentally added it or on purpose added it. And so this text that you're looking at is the, the text that we, we ought to, to receive, the text that we ought to, 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 to meditate upon as the word of God. The angels are declaring peace on the earth, but to whom? To those with whom God is pleased. Literally, literally the text reads, 
peace among men of his good pleasure. Men of God's good pleasure. The only other use of this word in Luke's gospel is found in chapter 10 when Jesus is praying and he says, Lord, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your good pleasure. Such was your gracious will. Such was well-pleasing in your sight. You see, the angels are not, as we often sing, saying that God gives peace and goodwill to every single person in some generic, sentimental sort of way, as if just like snowflakes falling all over the ground. No, if this were true, again, everyone would be saved, and the Bible clearly teaches that is not the case. Rather, what the angels are declaring is that God's favor, God's grace, God's mercy is undeserved. Peace to men whom he has graciously chosen according to his good pleasure, to the little children to whom he has revealed his truth. And doesn't the fact that God appears to this tiny group of shepherds in the middle of the night remind us that God is the sovereign God who sovereignly has chosen a people for himself who reveals himself to his elect when and how he pleases. You didn't think you would hear about election on Christmas morning, did you? And yet here it is in the text. Election is a hard truth, but it is a truth nonetheless. And it is a truth that the angels were declaring to the shepherds that night outside of Bethlehem. The reason why we need to make sure we understand this truth is because it is a truth that highlights and protects the graciousness of the gospel. We have to remember that God did not have to save anyone. That he saves anyone at all is purely of his grace, purely of his mercy. He is free to save whomever he desires to save. It's why Paul in Ephesians 1 writes that, that, that God's predestining some to be saved was according to the same word, the good pleasure of his will. If we ask the question, well, why does God's favor rest on some and not on others? We don't know the answer to that question. But we do know what the answer is not. It's not because of something found in the person on whom the favor of God rests. It's not because of who you were that God has chosen you. It's not because of anything you did. What does Paul say? Salvation is not of man who runs, man who wills, but of God who shows mercy. He shows mercy on whom he shows mercy. We must constantly remember the graciousness of the gospel declared in its particularity. We must constantly remember that if we are chosen, we are not choice. If God has elected us, it's not because we're select or special in any way. Salvation is all of grace. We were under the wrath of God, and he had mercy upon us. The angels declaring to the shepherds the sovereign grace of God in the gospel, of God's own good pleasure, saving his people when and where and how he pleases, doing it for his own glory in Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? That salvation is all of grace. We must. We must. And if we do, if we trust in Jesus Christ, 
Then finally, we see in this text the right response to the gospel. The right response. We see it in three couplets. First, we will rejoice and we will rest. When you understand how gracious God has been to you in the gospel of our incarnate Savior, how can you not be filled with a deep-seated joy, with a peace, a fearlessness, a confidence that is rooted not in your circumstances, but in Christ and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joy, peace, that is what has come to us in the gospel. Look, December is a crazy, hectic month, isn't it? So many things going on. You've been stressed out. There's been worry, anxiety, fear. Maybe it's from you know, people coming to your house. Maybe it's the, going to see company and, and family you haven't seen in so long. Whatever it might be, whatever circumstances have robbed you of joy, have robbed you of peace, the angels are declaring that because of Jesus, because of his birth, you can have joy. You can arrest your souls your weary souls, in peace in Christ. So rejoicing, resting. But we also see in this text this response of marveling and meditating. Verses 18 and 19, as the shepherds go and, and share what they have heard, the people marvel, they wonder. They're amazed at what God has done, amazed at what the shepherds have declared. But it's possible, isn't it, to marvel without saving faith, to wonder, to be amazed, but not actually to believe and to trust in. The people marvel, but what did Mary do? Mary meditated. Mary pondered. She treasured and contemplated all that was happening. She didn't understand it perfectly, but she was starting to put the pieces together, it seems. She spent time thinking about who her son was, what God was doing with him, and she's growing deeper in faith. And so the question for each and every single one of us here this morning, do you believe in the gospel that the angels proclaim? Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior, the only Savior, that he is the Christ, that he is the Lord or do you have a Jesus of your own imagining, a Jesus of your own manufacturing? Do you believe that the wrath of God is coming and that if you are not in Christ, not hidden by Christ, not rescued by Christ, then you will bear that wrath? Do you believe the gospel? Have you looked for your salvation to the baby in the manger who grew up to die on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead, who is seated even now at the right hand of God the Father, a man still reigning over all heaven and all earth. Do you believe in this Jesus and in what he has done for sinners like you? Marvel, but meditate. Meditate in faith on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And last, what is the right response? It is to evangelize and to exalt. We see it, don't we, in verse 17 and verse 20? All right, the natural overflow of the heart that has been apprehended and transformed by the grace of God and Jesus Christ is to desire to tell others about the gift 
that you have received and to want to tell God in grateful praise what he has done for you. David in Psalm 51 writes this. He says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Right? There's evangelism. And he writes this, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, thy mouth that may declare your praise. There's exaltation. Even in Psalm 51, the response of the heart that has been forgiven and freed is a response of evangelism and exaltation. Witnessing and worship. How odd is it that God would use sinners like us to bring other sinners to know him, to know his son, to understand the gospel. And yet the more we understand it, the more we meditate upon what God has done in Christ, the more comfortable we will be, the, the more fearless we will be with, with telling others who are condemned to suffer God's wrath eternally what God has done to save sinners like them. Jesus has been born, we will say. But we won't just say that. We'll also say who that Jesus is and why he came, why he was born, to be the only Savior from God's wrath, the long-awaited Messiah who brings God's word, who reconciles men to God, who reigns as a good and a godly king. He is God. He is the Lord who must be adored, submitted to, instantly obeyed. And we'll not just tell people, but we will praise God. Isn't it st striking that the incarnation of Jesus has inspired so much poetry, so much hymnody, so much worship? But should it surprise us? Should it surprise us that those who have meditated most deeply upon the birth of Jesus desire to praise God and thank God for what he has done in Christ? And so let me ask you, do you see these responses in your heart and in your life? Do you see the rejoicing and the resting? Do you see the marveling and the meditating? Do you see the evangelizing and the exalting? If you do, to whatever degree you see it, pray that the Lord would let this story fan it even more into flame. Those fires you've been having, right, the last couple of days and sub-zero weather, and you've been putting more wood on and fanning the flame and stoking the fire, let the word of God do the same for you even this day. But maybe you, you read this story, you hear my words, and you feel like that one lone log that's not on fire any longer. It's, 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 there's, there's chars, there's some coals that are embers that are you know, kind of warm and orange and red, but it's dying out. And you look at that one lone log and you think, that's me. Right? That's the way I feel. I could wish that my responses were stronger, were, were fuller, were, 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 were more joyful. And yet you look at your heart and you see a callousness. You see an over-comfortableness with the gospel. Pray that the Lord would throw another long on the fire. That even here, gathered amongst God's people, you would be stoked. You would be spurred on. You would be fanned up that you would revive 
That, that, that you who have fallen away, who have backslidden, would return. And that as you return and you would see the goodness and the joy of the gospel of Jesus afresh and anew. And if you have never, ever seen it, if you've never responded in faith and repentance and joy and peace, you've never known what it is to worship God and to talk of the the good gift that he's given. Friend, it is never too late. Today is the day of salvation. You are here by the providence of God. You've heard the gospel of God proclaimed. We've sung it. Respond in faith. Put your trust in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the true message, for the graciousness of the gospel. Lord, would you grant your spirit to help us to respond appropriately Lord, may this story that is so familiar, may it, may it be odd to us. May we see it as odd, see it as strange. But Lord, in its strangeness and its oddness, Lord, may we see and hear what you have done for sinners like us. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. As we gather together, Lord, as we fellowship even now in conversation after this service, Lord, would you encourage our hearts? Lord, would you bless us this day? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.